everyone, and welcome to the 64th episode of the Always Drive podcast, your weekly look at the latest news from the car, truck, and motorcycle industries where we take everything but ourselves seriously. I'm your host, Devlin Riggs, and I have a real problem. Uh, that problem is trucks. Uh, I've, had, I've had a long history with trucks, uh, starting from a very early age. If you ask my parents what my first complex word was, they'll say it was truck which probably sounded a bit more profane at the time. Uh, I, I used to love rolling around in the back of my dad's Jeep Wagoneer on the rare occasion that it ran, uh, and before seatbelts were really compulsory. Um, and as I get ready to sell my bike and try to figure out what my next automotive adventure is going to be, my mind keeps going back to the place where it's been so many times before, trucks. And I've been a, a bit obsessive about them recently. I've been looking up deals and comparing 80s vintage SUVs along with some more modern high-mileage used Toyotas. And I think I've settled on the make and model I want. But that's going to change based on the day of the week you ask me or the time of day or the availability of certain vehicles. So why is it? Instead of hunting down one of these trucks tomorrow, I'm going to test drive a range-extended electric BMW i3 uh, because the wife has decided uh, she's had it with her plug-in Ford Fusion, which is throwing the same check engine code that it did right before the entire continuously variable transmission had to be replaced several months ago, and because she's trying to find time in her schedule to take it into the dealership for its third recall since we've had it, which has just been more than a year and a half. I know we're not yet at the age where Elon Musk can just push out an over-the-air update to fix all of our automotive ails, but there isn't really a way to install a longer steering wheel bolt over the air anyway. But of all the hybrids we drove last weekend, the BMW was by far the most surprising and the most enjoyable. Sure, German engineering and all that, but there's simply something you can't overlook when a car puts a smile on your face or surprises you. It, it makes you suddenly willing to overlook some flaws that it has, as well as some other less compelling competitors. So, as we were along in an electric silence tomorrow, I'll be enjoying the, the fine eucalyptus dashboard and the, the large center display and the comfy seats and the generous interior space, but I'll be wondering, could my theoretical truck tow this thing? Here are your top stories. The automotive landscape is in a pretty significant state of flux right now, with sales down, tariffs up, and a trade war looming just around the corner. But driven by the ever-increasing pressure to generate value for their shareholders, automotor, automakers just can't sit back, shrug, and say, hey, shit happens, guys. So what we're seeing is a dramatic uptick in the number of partnerships between automakers and investment by automakers and new technology companies. The largest of these is undoubtedly Nissan-Renault-Mitsubishi, a partnership heralded by Carlos Ghosn, which is an alliance, not a single company like the Volkswagen Automotive Group, which holds Audi, Porsche, Bugatti, Skoda, and others. Just by cooperating, Nissan-Renault-Mitsubishi saved a collective $6.6 billion last year alone. And that was the first year that Mitsubishi had taken full part in this partnership, before it was just Nissan and Renault. This is by sharing development costs of new platforms, new technologies, new parts, 
components and by their increased purchasing power, being able to buy more in bulk at a cheaper price. The alliance is basically like a membership to automotive Costco. They're talking about making this alliance a merger, but that, that's still a ways off. And when someone says their alliance saved them almost $7 billion a year, people start paying attention, specifically that same Volkswagen Automotive Group. They announced this week a strategic alliance with Ford. The details of the Memorandum of Understanding signed are pretty vague, but it sounds from the statements made like it's an awful lot like the Nissan-Renault-Mitsubishi deal, where they will share development costs and technology, apparently primarily focused for uh, on commercial vehicles. Uh, I'd say it's a win for both companies, since Ford has been ahead in the hybrid game for a while, and Volkswagen's infotainment system is one of the best I've used in a long time. But how necessary those are for commercial vehicles is another question. I'd go ahead and take credit for the partnership, since my household has been a Ford VW garage since February. Um, Volkswagen isn't stopping just with Ford, though. Through their Audi brand, they are partnering with Hyundai to co-develop fuel cell vehicles. Audi has apparently been tasked with developing fuel cells for the rest of the Volkswagen automotive group, while VW works primarily on battery cars. Audi will start working with Hyundai's iX35 fuel cell SUV and the forthcoming Nexo and leverage collective R&D to take their fuel cell tech to the next level. The the next level, of course, being a level at which someone might want to actually purchase a fuel cell vehicle, which I think is probably more a matter of fueling infrastructure rather than car quality or availability at this point. Regardless, the partnership should save both companies a lot. But speaking of Volkswagen running the battery game, they announced this week that they have increased their stake in QuantumScape Corporation, forming a joint venture for the purpose of producing viable solid-state batteries for automobiles. The goal here is to put them in production cars by 2025, and if that sounds familiar, it's because Toyota is doing pretty much the same thing, but on their own. Future partnership gun coming? As a refresher, solid-state batteries basically pack more power and energy storage capacity into smaller packages. They said that a solid-state battery could increase the range of Volkswagen's e-Golf from its current 186 miles on lithium-ion batteries to a whopping 466 miles, which would beat basically every other electric car out there right now. And hell, that's even more range than my GTI gets on premium gas. I may be looking at the Golf GTE come 2026 or so. Also in the Volkswagen Automotive Group, Porsche has bought a minority stake in Rimac, makers of two electric supercar models, one of which was crashed by Richard Hammond on a hill climb, you may remember, last year. Um, As is the case with most partnerships entered into voluntarily, both companies stand to benefit, with Porsche tapping into Rimac's experience with electric supercars for their upcoming Taycan, and future electric cars, and Rimac getting access to Porsche's suppliers and potentially greater savings on parts from increased purchasing power. And you know what stands out to me about every one of these partnerships? They're all international. Every single one. To me, they show the great potential for progress when companies work together, share technology, and help one another out, rather than operating in silos, shutting out the competition. The market is tough right now, and and if companies are going to survive, they have to work together. And the result for us petrol heads? More choice, lower costs, and better, more developed options. If only more people believed in tearing down walls, huh?
The annual 24 Hours of Le Mans race occurred last weekend, and after years of trying and failing through breakdowns and superior competition, Toyota finally won the thing, becoming only the second Japanese manufacturer in history to win, uh, the other being Mazda, who used to have some freaking awesome race cars. Um, it certainly helped Toyota this year that Porsche and Audi are no longer competing in the LMP1 class, leaving them as the only factory team in the World Endurance Championship's top class. It's awfully easy to come in first when you have the fastest car in the fastest class without any other competitors. Uh, regardless, they didn't break down, which in itself is a feat in endurance racing. Uh, Porsche, meanwhile, dominated the LMGTE Pro and Amateur classes with its 911 RSRs, with the number 92 Pink Pig Porsche winning in the Pro class. And if you're wondering why it's called the Pink Pig, just Google it, and then appreciate the fact that fans were calling the car's pit stops Pig Stops. Overall, the race was pretty uneventful. Um, I got to watch a little bit of it, which makes for pretty boring watching. Uh, part of that comes from the fact that the new rules meant that no team was allowed to run more than 14 laps per stint, and that there was a, fuel, a per stint fuel limit that was, in many cases, uh, less fuel than the cars were capable of holding, making for some headaches in the pits and a few mistakes that cost some drivers some time. Another part is because the rules have stifled competition so much that racing has become too expensive for many manufacturers to take part. Thus, Porsche and Audi's departure from LMP1 for Formula E. Fortunately, things will be changing in a couple years as the FIA announced shortly before the race some exciting changes that are coming to the World Endurance Championship. The LMP1 class, which currently consists of only Toyota, will be scrapped entirely, being replaced instead with a hypercar-type class that will impose limits on car power, weight, weight distribution, aerodynamics, and downforce, but with more freedom to design the cars uh, more closely to road-going hypercars and supercars. Uh, this not only gives the race a bit more relevance to real-world drivers uh, it gives, <laughs> who can apparently afford hypercars, it, it gives companies a chance to test technology that may, they may actually be able to use in their, on their road cars. Um, the class will still mandate a hybrid drivetrain, but the internal combustion engines can sort of be up to the manufacturer, so long as they're limited to 697 horsepower, which is still a lot, especially when paired with a standard 268 horsepower hybrid electric motor. Uh, race commissioners say they want to move the series to the point where, quote, manufacturers can win at Le Mans even on a limited budget, end quote. And I'm sure limited budgets relative, but it's still a good sign that may invite more competition moving forward. The new rules will be introduced in 2020, and we'll apparently get to vote on the name of the class, the top tier class, so um, I'm going to look forward to watching the hypercars of the future compete in the racy McRace face class in the not-too-distant future. Long-time listeners may remember a few months ago I mentioned Audi's partnership with Airbus to start developing flying cars. Uh, as a refresher, these were very loosely termed flying cars. Um, basically, it's a three-part design with a quadcopter, passenger pod, and electric skateboard-like platform. The pod can be transported either by the quadcopter or by the wheeled platform, making it flying or a car, but not really a flying car. 
I said at the time that the idea was pretty neat and more likely to succeed than any other system I'd seen. And sure enough, Audi has just received approval from the German government to start testing these in their headquarters city in Bavaria, Ingolstadt. Now, this is a long way from being like, oh my god, we are all totally going to be catching flying car taxis from the airports within five years. But it's a lot closer than I thought we would see in my lifetime. So I'm hoping this actually goes somewhere. Onward and upward, Audi. In a time when automotive manufacturing jobs can be really hard to come by in the U.S., who can we trust to bring back those jobs? Yep, the Chinese and the Swedes. Um, Volvo, which is owned by Chinese company Geely, formally opened their new factory in South Carolina, which will be, uh, be used to build the new S60, which we'll get into a little later. Uh, in addition to providing Volvo the chance to suck up to American buyers by focusing on the $1.1 billion investment in America and the 4,000 jobs that the factory will host when the construction's complete, the event gave Volvo execs the chance to cast some serious shade at Donald Trump and his supporters Nikki Haley and Governor Henry McMaster. Volvo CEO Hakan Samuelson said, if you have trade bar- and this is a quote, if you have trade barriers and restrictions, we cannot create as many jobs as we are planning to. We want to export, and if suddenly China and Europe have high barriers, it would be impossible. Then you have to build the cars there. Then and then all the cars will be more expensive. You have to invest more tooling and have every model in every country. That's against all the logic of modern economies that trade with each other. End quote. It seems like there's a lot of commentary about our trade policy being against all logic, and yet here we are, threatening a 25% tariff on import vehicles and auto parts. It's almost like logic doesn't factor into decisions at all, but what do I know? I'm only a master of business with a degree in political science who happens to like his cars cheap and fast. Uh, The fallout from the Dieselgate scandal continues still in Germany this week, where Audi CEO Rupert Stadler was arrested based on concealment of evidence relating to the defeat devices on Volkswagen Auto Group vehicles. He's actually remained in custody because the prosecution thinks he's a flight risk. Uh, Audi's had to scramble to name an interim CEO while their boss remains a jailbird, But this just continues to look bad. If the CEO of one of your major brands was aware of the effort to deceive authorities, former Volkswagen CEO Martin Winterkorn is probably shaking in his boots because you can bet he knew about it too. It's a serious problem when a culture of corruption comes straight from the top. And and you would have thought that Volkswagen had learned its very expensive lesson, but by keeping Stadler as Audi CEO this long after the scandal came to light, Maybe they need a couple more billion-dollar settlements before they root out all the corrupt jerks. Um, I will take my settlement in the form of a V10 R8. Thank you very much. Um, This will, again, not be the week when we have no Tesla news, because there was some wild shit going on with Elon Musk's company this week. First, the not-so-wild. Tesla completed the setup of a third production line over the weekend in their parking lot. Uh, yes, the new lot line is underneath temporary tents outside because the space is needed that badly to ramp up production to meet goals. Back when the factory was a combined General Motors and Toyota venture, they managed to crank out 8,200 cars per week from inside the place. So if Tesla needs to move outdoors just to reach 5,000, I think you can imagine how much more complicated these production lines are and how much more space they take up. Next came some serious shade thrown from General Motors. Actress Mary McCormick, who you may remember from 
television. I, I don't know. Uh, she tweeted out a video of her husband's Tesla Model S, which apparently just started catching fire while he was driving it and burst into flames in the middle of Santa Monica Boulevard. Tesla has no idea what happened or why, but General Motors jumped in at the opportunity, offering the actress a free Chevy Bolt as a more dependable loaner car. Very nicely done, GM communications guy Ray Wirt. Um, okay, now we get to the crazy shit. Uh, on Sunday, Elon Musk sent out an email accusing a former employee of sabotage and intellectual property theft, as well as leaking sensitive information to third parties and the press. He followed up that email with another about someone potentially trying to sabotage a production line by starting a fire. Then on Tuesday, Tesla filed a lawsuit against the former employee for alleging, allegedly having stolen confidential information and making false claims to the media. Then today, Thursday, someone claiming to be a friend of Martin Tripp, the guy Tesla sued on Tuesday, called the Gigafactory uh, to warn that Tripp was coming in to shoot up the place causing a minor panic and uh, for beefed-up security until the county sheriff found that there was no credible credibility to the threat. Then after that, Tripp posted to Twitter an email exchange that he had had with Musk about the lawsuit, wherein they both called each other horrible human beings and generally behaved like children. We're not sure if the Sunday email and the Tuesday lawsuit are connected, or much less the Sunday night email about the fire starting, but... If not, that means there are several people trying their darndest to mess up Elon's life. And geez, people, if you don't like constant, if you do like constant drama bombs being dropped, just don't don't watch daytime television. Just follow Elon Musk on Twitter. This is this is getting ridiculous. Uh, the annual list of JD Power rankings for initial quality were released this week, and if you've been listening to the show and looking at their recent cars, you wouldn't be surprised to learn that Genesis, Kia, and Hyundai are the top three brands, all of them belonging to Hyundai. Even Porsche comes in at just the fourth spot, and fourth uh, Ford is in a somewhat unbelievable fifth. Uh, the trick is, the initial power rankings count the number of problems experienced per 100 vehicles in the first 90 days of ownership. If things are going wrong within 90 days, that's generally not a great sign for future reliability, but certainly not a sign that cars with good initial quality will last longer, as may be the case here with Ford. Um, they also don't measure the severity of the problem, so a busted transmission is effectively weighted the same as a windshield wiper motor squeaking, which is pretty misleading. Furthermore, as I've discussed before, automakers do pay JD Power for the right to use their awards in marketing materials, so these sort of non-first-hand user reviews and the pay-for-play awards should be taken with a grain of salt. Nevertheless, Hyundai... Definitely deserves a look if you're looking at buying cars, because they do make some pretty nice ones. Just as with anything, question everything. While I've never driven one, it's my understanding that Corvettes are pretty pretty fun cars to drive. Uh, but in the Netherlands, where people decided they'd rather have land where the sea was, so they built a complex series of windmills to drive the sea back into the ocean, uh, one man has gone and made his Corvette a bit more complex as well. Specifically, he modified his C6 Corvette to be remote-controlled. Uh, now, we've seen full-sized RC cars before, but doing so to a Corvette is an entirely different scale, one that costs about $4,000. 
and it's honestly really impressive that someone could pull this off, but I still think I'd rather be behind the wheel of that V8 rather than just putting around in a parking lot somewhere. But that's the Dutch for you, defying convention, and also the ocean. Now for some new cars. Brand new, brand new, brand new. I don't like it unless it's brand new. You might see me in my well with my head pumping my. Literally just hours before recording, Chevrolet unveiled its new Blazer. That's right, the SUV you most closely associate with your cousin's weed dealer is back, but this time it looks like you might see them somewhere besides trailer parks because it actually looks really neat. Uh, just like its predecessor, it's a body-on-frame 4x4, and it should be great off-road and... Uh, oh, um... Uh, I'm actually reading, uh, it's a unibody design and uh, comes in base form with 193 horsepower with from a four-cylinder and front-wheel drive. Front-wheel drive? Well, I'm sure it punches above its weight and can tow a small boat or something and features big, beefy tires. It'll be great for mud and... Well, no. Uh, 188 foot-pounds of torque on the four-cylinder and... Uh, I can guess you can get big drug dealer 21-inch wheels as an option, too. So, uh, basically, what we have here is not really a new Blazer at all, but instead a compact crossover wearing the Blazer's name and styling borrowed from a Camaro to try to appeal to hashtag millennials. Uh, the good news here is that there's an available 3.6-liter V6 that pumps out 305 horsepower and all-wheel drives available, but it's through a 9-speed automatic transmission, so I... Don't think you'll be wanting to take this thing off the pavement. Chevy's doing the same thing as Mitsubishi. They're they're trying to leverage the popularity of old nameplates with completely different products, which only pisses off the people who like the old cars that wore those names. I mean, we see it with Porsche. There, there aren't many good car names left, so apparently we get things like Taycan. But don't just recycle names because you can if the product you're trying to sell doesn't live up to the product that established the name in the first place. And do you hear that, Ford? Don't you mess around with the Bronco. So where Chevy fails, though, Suzuki succeeds with the unveiling this week of the new Jimny. Uh, what's that you say? That's the Suzuki Jimny, basically a Japanese Jeep Wrangler. But it's a small, off-road capable SUV that's as uh, cute as hell, but uh, unlike the Blazer, totally stays true to the original car, originally launched in 1988 and not really updated at all since then. It has, uh, a lot has changed in the past 20 years, and fortunately so has the interior of the new car, but it keeps the same body-on-frame layout and cute but rugged exterior styling that makes the original so iconic looking. Sadly, like all Suzukis, this one won't be coming to the U.S., which is a shame because it's probably going to cost a lot less than $20,000, while the cost of the Wrangler just continues to inflate ridiculously. Uh, in other cars, we will probably not get the new Audi A1 was unveiled this week, and unlike the Jimny, it's not a cute little thing at all. It's an angry little monster that just wants to gobble up the road in its gigantic front grille. Uh, for comparison, this thing is built on the platform for the Volkswagen Polo and Seat Ibiza, um, around the size of a Honda Fit or a Ford Fiesta for, uh, you know, relevant American comparison. It's quite small, but while they shrunk the rest of the proportions of the car, Audi forgot to shrink the grille, 
And if you happen to be traveling to Europe and want a nice small rental car, maybe one of these will do, but do try to get the 2-liter Turbo 4 because that has around 200 horsepower. If you end up in the 95-horsepower Turbo 1-liter 3-cylinder, I can't imagine you coming away with too positive an impression of this vehicle, no matter how nice the interior is. Also revealed this week uh, was the new Volvo S60, which takes the new hot styling direction of all other recent Volvos and slaps it on their high-volume mid-size sedan. Uh, and also the wagon, the V60, which is much better looking and more useful on the car you should absolutely get. Um, the S60 is very pretty, right up until you get to the back end, where they stuck with their recent horrible trend of putting gigantic lobster claws across the back of the vehicle instead of giving it understated classy taillights. From many angles, you might confuse this with an Audi A4, which is a good thing, but not from the back. Um, there are several trims, the Momentum, R-Design, and Inscription, which are available in 250-horsepower T5 front-wheel drive or 316-horsepower T6 all-wheel drive, or, if you select the R-Design or Inscription, a T8 plug-in hybrid powertrain that nets you 400-horsepower and a loony 500 foot-pounds of torque, which is obviously the one to go for if you, you know, happen to have... $55,000 lying around and feel the need for Swede. Um, after showing us the M8 concept uh, and a concept, uh, BMW has officially unveiled the new 8 series, coinciding with the 24 Hours of Le Mans. Uh, it stays pretty true to the concept, which is a long, rakish coupe. It's very attractive, not to mention very powerful. Um, the 850i xDrive features a twin-turbo 4.4-liter V8 that churns out 523 horsepower and 553 foot-pounds of torque to all four wheels, propelling the car to 60 in an impressive 3.6 seconds. For a big heavy coupe, that's very fast and undoubtedly feels a lot faster inside it. Uh, the car also features several driving modes, including Echo Pro, which saves fuel through changing the transmission behavior and engine start-stop technology. But if you are worried about fuel consumption, you will probably not be purchasing a twin-turbo V8. Uh, pricing isn't available yet, but it's safe to assume it will not be affordable to almost all of us. Um, the hilariously named Gazoo Racing Arm of Toyota debuted a car this week, the Super Sport Concept, which has a very 90s name, and looks like a bit of a revival of the very 90s 1998 uh, GT1, which was basically a Le Mans prototype but built for the road since back then manufacturers were required to have road-going versions of the vehicles that they raced. These uh, homologation specials, as they were called, gave us the Porsche 911 GT1 and the Mer Mercedes CLK GTR, among others, uh, which were limited production, uh, limited usability race cars that were somehow legal to drive on some road somewhere. Um, totally impractical, totally outrageous and unaffordable, and, and absolutely existing just because the companies that made them wanted to win races with faster cars. As the rule changes go into place for the World Endurance Championship in 2020, the Supersport concept could be what Toyota takes to the track, and maybe what seven or eight really lucky, really rich individuals get to take to their driveways. Finally this week, a plug for the Ed Napoleon Automotive Group in Indiana, who sell very good cars and are just very good people. I know this because they recently gave a free Hyundai Elantra to Jason Seaman, 
the seventh grade teacher from Noblesville, Indiana, who was shot three times while subduing a school shooter on May 25th. One of his pupils was shot seven times and remains in the hospital, and Seaman visits her weekly, and this new car will make it even easier for him to do so. He says he doesn't like the attention, but he is certainly deserving of it for averting an even greater disaster. Not that people should be heroes to potentially win new cars, but we could certainly use a few more Jason Siemens in the world. That is it for our show this week. Uh, Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Nicholas Falcon for our intro song. Uh, To close out, one of the funniest things to come out of the 24 hours of Le Mans this week was the Big M8 meme. Uh, Basically, it started with one Japanese racing enthusiast taking a screenshot of a minor bump an M8 gave a Ford GT racer and, for some reason, enlarging the M8 to make it look like a gigantic monster next to this little tiny Ford. Uh, This obviously led to other users extrapolating further, making the M8 larger and larger until it spanned the width of the entire track. Uh, Jalopnik has a pretty good roundup of some of the best photos, but for your listening pleasure, this is the BMW M8. Here, friends, is your moment of zen. Oh. <laughs>